You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 68 Woo. of the Common Descent Podcast. Welcome. Welcome. This is a really cool topic. We are talking today about the evolution of eyes. Ooh. Yes. Should be fun. It's got a lot. This is one of the topics of all the ones that we've done so far that I ended up having to study the most for because there's so much. Yeah, big topic. It's a huge topic. We're not going to cover everything, but there's a lot of cool stuff. We're going to look at some of the varieties of eyes, how an eye works and how the different eyes worked, and then... What we know about the evolution of various eyes and eyes in general, because there's some aspects that we actually don't know a lot about. So we're going to get into that. Now, this episode was requested by a number of people. It was a very popular topic. One was our patron Nils, as well as Lita, Brian, and Jonathan. Well, thanks, everybody. Thanks for the awesome topic. Yeah, hopefully we live up to it. We'll see. We'll see. So before we get on (laughs) to the episode... We have some announcements. Yes, we do. So just brief announcements. First and foremost, we have a Patreon. And when you sign up on that Patreon at a certain level, we like to yell your name at the internet void like this. So welcome, Charlie, to our Patreon. Hey, thanks, Charlie. Thanks. If you're interested, we'd put up lots of bonus stuff on Patreon. We put up bonus news, which is something that's been going on for just a little bit now. Yes, so and we have plans for more things. Plans for more things. So if you'd like to take a look at those, if you're already on Patreon, go check it out. If you want to take a look at those, check out Patreon. Yes, indeed. We also, at the end of this month, have plans to go to Dragon Con. Going back to Dragon Con. Going back to Dragon Con. We'll be getting there at Dragon Con just a few days after this episode has released. So if you listen to this episode early yes, and you're in Dragon Con, come say hi. Absolutely. We also are going to be on a few panels. And we can tell you which ones now. Now we can give you more concrete information. So between the two of us, we will be on four different panels. Mm-hmm. Two which we are sharing, two which we are each on our own with other people. First one that we will be sharing is on Saturday... It is the Paleontology Hour. Very excited. Absolutely. We'll be on there with Trevor Valley. Yeah, who we were with last time. And it was a ton of fun. Indeed it was. Expect fun this time. Then on Sunday, we're Chock-A-Block. We have one that I'm on, which is the Speculative Evolution panel. Yeah. How to Create a Monster. Which is right up your alley. Oh, I'm so excited for that one. So if you like our spooky stuff, check that out. Then David is on How Science Dates Things. Yes, we're going to talk about how to determine the ages of things. And I'm going to be on there with a bunch of other people. Uh, a few of the names that I know, one of which is Dr. Pamela Gay, which I'm very... <laughs> I don't often get starstruck, if you'll excuse the the, the, the phrasing there. But I, I might, that's, that's very exciting. <laughs> yeah, that'll be cool. And then Sunday night, we and Trevor again, and then a few other people, I believe... We'll all be on the Science versus Movies panel. Yeah, which, as anyone who listens to the yeah. podcast will know, yeah, we're we're prepared for that. It's and it's a little flip <laughs> on the head where we have now have to defend the the wonderful movie science. Yes, and explain why <laughs> it absolutely makes sense. <laughs> so we will post 
hopefully we'll be able to post pictures and stuff of these panels. We might be able to get a recording yes. of at least one. We'll see. We'll, we'll figure it out once we get there. Yeah. So keep your eyes and ears open. Absolutely. And if you're there, please come bug us. We would please love do. it. This is also a good time to remind people that we have a store. Yes, we do. With merch. where You can buy shirts and mugs and magnets and mouse pads or whatever. Buy us <laughs> stuff with our stuff on it. It's going to be pretty cool. And we will be modeling some of the shirts at DragonCon. So if yeah. you want a, if you want a preview of what you could buy, come see us. Check it out. We got new shirts. <laughs> we did. New new shirts for us. They're not, it's not a new design. Yes. Don't get, don't get too excited. No, it's just new colors. We, we, we <laughs> use it as an excuse to we, up our, our, our closet. We got shirts that won't show dirt. Yes. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what we did. And that's it for announcements. It is indeed. And that brings us to the news. News time. So every episode, we like to... Go over some recent science news, things covering evolution, paleontology, earth sciences that we find interesting, that we hope you'll find interesting, keep us up to date, keep you up to date. And to start us off, I'm going to turn it over to David. That's me. My first bit of news today is about a giant parrot. Ooh. For yeah. very big pirates. For very big pirates. In New Zealand. Oh, cool. So, at, we have discussed in the past that evolution gets weird on islands. Very weird. Uh, way back in episode four, we discussed island evolution. And one of the most famous ways that evolution gets weird on islands is that big things get small and small things get big. Mm -hmm. Today, there is a giant flightless parrot on New Zealand. Yes. It is the kakapo. Not only are the kakapo flightless, they, they roam around on the ground, they're doing like herbivorous Mm -hmm. stuff that you'd normally have other animals do but they're rather large at a whopping three kilograms yeah so six pounds that's it's hefty that's a big parrot it's a, it's a parrot you'd get tired carrying around <laughs> well this new research by trevor worthy et al in biology letters and we will link to an article on the guardian by anna plezaski that's what i'm gonna go with and lisa martin but also, we'll put up a link to, uh, there's a SciShow episode of SciShow News on YouTube that talks about this news piece. I know, because I wrote it, which means I know it's good. <laughs> this research describes fossils from early Miocene deposits in New Zealand, so we're talking just under 20 million years ago, which are part of the St. Bathans fauna, which is a rich assemblage that includes crocs, and turtles, and bats, and lots of birds. Cool. Dozens of species of extinct birds. In this study, they describe two incomplete tibiotarsi. So, if you've ever looked at a bird skeleton real close, you'll notice that their leg and ankle bones are kind of fused into one structure. That's the tibiotarsus. Two examples of these, not complete, but complete enough, to note two things. Number one, that they share features with the parrot family. Cool. So clearly a parrot. And number two, that they're huge. Leg bones are really handy for estimating size and weight because leg bones tend to be the bones that support the weight. This extinct parrot is thus estimated to have had a mass of seven kilograms. <laughs> wow. Which makes it the largest known parrot, living or extinct, by more than two times. It is more than twice the weight of a kakapo. Wow. <laughs> Huge parrot. 
That's ridiculous. So that's 15 pounds or so for our American listeners. <laughs> <laughs> they named it applicably Heracles in expectatus. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a good name. That's a good name. Now, as to why it's gigantic, it's fairly obvious. Island effect, just as normal. Insular gigantism. Very probably a flightless bird. Mm-hmm. And because New Zealand at that time was home to a rich subtropical forest, the researchers suggest that it, New Zealand also being large probably had a bunch of diverse, lush ecosystems that had plenty of niche opportunities for different animals to move in, especially considering that they're missing a lot of the mainland types of animals. Yeah. Mammal, herbivores, and carnivores and stuff. This is added to the long list of weird New Zealand birds. Yeah. (laughs) Like the moas and the... A moa, actually. I don't think you're supposed to put an S on it. The giant eagles Mm -hmm. that live there. There are even oversized bats yeah, that are known from New Zealand. Things that we don't know about this parrot, especially since all we have are a couple of leg bones. Enough to say big parrot, not enough to say much else. One big question is, of course, what was it doing? Yeah. Like, yeah, probably being herbivorous or something on the ground, but we don't know. Also, an intriguing question, was it related to Kakapo? Or is it a separate evolution of large body size in a parrot? That was where my brain was was immediately going is how similar how similar would a giant parrot be to Kakapo anyway? Mm-hmm. And how closely related would they be? Yeah. Or are they? Is this one evolution of giant mm-hmm. parrot body size that we know of two members of that group? Or is this two different gigantism moments in parrot evolution was it a a nice place for parrots to get big yes which is super interesting it'd be fascinating to see if it was doing something different what it was doing like because we don't have many examples of ground dwelling parrots so we have one (laughs) (laughs) what else could a parrot do while on the ground this is one of those really cool examples and we've talked about this before where it's easy to get limited by the modern examples Yes. It's easy to immediately just go, okay, well, now draw a cockapoe, but twice as big. Yeah. Okay, but maybe not. Like, oh, yeah. Who knows? It could be, like, parrots are actually really mobile with their beak and feet. Like, they're really good climbers and stuff without using their wings. So this thing could be really mobile. Like, it might be climbing around the trees for all we know. Fortunately, the St. Bathans fauna is very fossil rich. So hopefully there's more out there to find. Awesome. So to follow up... Your news piece about a giant fossil New Zealand bird, mm-hmm. I thought I would talk about a news piece about a giant fossil New Zealand bird. Oh, hey, novel. Yeah. Well, uh, we're mixing it up yeah, for I, wa- I wanted to, you know, come at it from a different angle. I love dinosaurs. Uh, so this, this big bird is flightless. Okay. And it differs in the fact that it's a penguin, not a parrot. Oh, so, so not unusual yes, in its flightlessness. Exactly. This one is... Should be flightless. It'd be weird if it wasn't. It is as tall as a person, though. Hmm. It's giant. Well, the news isn't a competition. (laughs) I didn't say anything. (laughs) I'm just saying it's really big. (laughs) I'm just saying seven kilograms is nothing. (laughs) So this is research by Gerald Mayer et al. in Alcaringa, an Australasian journal of paleontology. And the article we're linking to is by Patrick Burkham 
in The Guardian. So this was actually a discovery by an amateur paleontologist, also in New Zealand, one of the southern islands. And this giant penguin, as I said, stood as tall as a person. And this isn't over-exaggerating. It literally was uh, uh, the height of a full-grown human. They measured this penguin, or estimates for it at least, go up to 1.6 meters tall. Wow. Yeah. And they have it at 80 kilograms. <laughs> now, my article didn't give the conversions right away. For, Neither did mine. I calculated them. And I didn't take the time to calculate Just them. multiply by two and add a little bit. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's, that's all really is. So 80 kilograms is like 170, yeah. 180 pounds, which is ridiculous. Yeah, no, that's not even a small human. Like, No, that's a <laughs> fairly big human. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's almost us-sized. Yes, I, that's at 170, 180 that's more than me says. You're right? <laughs> I'm not I, a big human. I could take this penguin. <laughs> You'd be in the same weight class. Yes, exactly. We would be fighting for the same belt. <laughs> this penguin dates back to the Paleocene, which is between 66 and 56 million years ago, and is the largest penguin ever discovered. Like, Oh, yeah. By I a, hope so. By a good bit. It is 40 centimeters taller than the tallest emperor penguin, which is the biggest penguin today. Ooh. Yeah, it's this is a massive penguin, which is just cool. That's cool in its own right. Yeah, but it does tell us some interesting things from the its anatomy and the fact that it's so big. First is its leg bones seem to suggest that it was actually using its feet, not to swim only, but more than modern penguins. Okay. If you ever see a video of a penguin swimming, they tuck their feet up just like flying birds do. Like the feet just go away. They'll use them to steer a little bit, but it's mostly tail. Like the feet aren't doing as much. It's mostly the wings flapping and the tail steering and every now and then feet do stuff. But they're not kicking like ducks and stuff like that. This penguin might have been doing something more. Interesting. Some more kicking or steering maybe. Maybe when you get that big, the tail's not enough to steer with. Maybe. This is not the first penguin to be found, fossil penguin to be found from this area. This is actually the fifth species described from this area. This is a new species which has been named Crossvalia waiparensis, and it is actually fairly similar to another prehistoric giant penguin, this one from Antarctica, so not similar area, but similar time period. And the fact that there are two giant penguins, at least from this time, suggests that penguins got big early, and that was likely part of their success. A lot of penguins nowadays, we think about the smaller ones, but there are a number of fairly large penguin species and so this could be a an important trend in penguin evolution during the time shortly after the end cretaceous extinction when birds were doing lots of yes, cool big things exactly like a lot of birds started getting big to try to fill that niche left behind the previous big archosaurs also in case anybody out there is confused at a penguin in new zealand uh, not in antarctica Lots of species of penguins today are warmer climate yeah. penguins. Fun. So fun fact about penguins, they're all south of the border. Yep. They're all border. Equator. The, the equator. <laughs> yeah. They're south of many borders. Yes. They're all southern hemisphere, but only, I, I think it's only three or maybe four, but there's only like two or three species for sure that are Antarctic. Mm -hmm. The rest are South African, South Australian uh galapagos yep 
So we always picture penguins in snow, but the truth is most species don't encounter much snow during their their day-to-day activity. So this ancient penguin is weird for its size, but not for where it's living. No, we, we kind of expect to find penguins here, actually. Yeah. Now, why it went extinct and why these giant penguins disappeared is a question, of course, and they think it could just be that when larger marine mammals started to come into the the scene, started to enter the environment, it may have been too much competition for these large penguins okay. to keep up, which is a common whenever large animals disappear is that some form of competition just pushed them out of being able to eat as much as they need to eat. Uh, but they don't actually know for sure why penguins aren't giant anymore. Interesting big penguin with hopefully more for us to find out about it. Hopefully lots more giant birds to come yeah. out of New Zealand. I'm waiting for the, the giant kookaburra. Ooh. Yeah, I don't know. That's just a cool bird I think would be. <laughs> I'm waiting for the giant moa. <laughs> My next bit of news is not about birds. Boo. Or New Zealand. Boo. But it is about genetics. Eh. <laughs> Hush, you... This is research describing the discovery of the oldest RNA in ancient remains. Cool. Yes, this is research by Oliver Smith et al. in PLOS Biology. Uh, again, we'll link to a press release on Eureka Alert, but also that same episode of SciShow News that talked about the parrot also talked about this RNA discovery, which also means that I wrote both of them, so you know they're good. So we'll put that in the blog post, too. <laughs> you can watch the news this time. It's modesty on display. We've talked about ancient DNA a bunch on the podcast. We devoted an entire episode to it, episode 34. RNA. So you might think, oh, well, what's the deal with, uh, why is it such a big deal to find RNA if we're already finding DNA? Because they're different. They are. DNA is the blueprints in the body. RNA are, is the molecules, the genetic molecules, that take the information from DNA and carry it to the protein factories where the blueprints are then used to create proteins for the cell. Yeah, so the RNAs are the one that actually ensure things happen. Yes, the RNA are, is the molecule that reads the instructions and then transcri- transcribes it, translates it for the rest of the cell. It's the middle manager. It sure is. But... RNA is much harder to find in the fossil record because RNA breaks down really quick. Mm-hmm. Even quicker than DNA because that's kind of its job. Yes. It, it gets the information, moves the information, and then once it's done, it has to go away. Yeah, it's temporary. That You don't want yeah. it doing that job nonstop. So for a long time, the sort of common wisdom has been, well, you're probably just never going to find it in ancient remains at all ancient. Like, maybe even decades, centuries. Like, eh, probably not. But these authors point out that a handful of recent research has suggested otherwise. So they decided to do some in-depth, thorough analyses on three specimens. Two of them are wolf skins from Greenland, which were collected in the 19th and 20th century, which makes them within 100, 200 years old. The third are wolf remains, remains of some wolf tissue from Siberian permafrost. So this includes muscle tissue and liver tissue, which has been dated at a little over 14,000 years old. So a slight jump up. Slightly up. This is the end, the late Pleistocene epoch. 
So for comparison, this is around the time that humans are showing up in North America. <laughs> so this is a way is back. They managed to find RNA in all three, Ooh. which indicates that RNA can be found in ancient remains not only hundreds of years old, but at least 14,000 years old. For comparison with other research, the oldest known RNA, like the oldest found RNA in any remains before this, was about 5,000 years old. But they didn't just identify RNA, they sequenced it. What? Which is to say they were able to read the sequence of this preserved RNA, and the oldest RNA that's ever been sequenced is about 700 years old. Wow. So this is roughly 13,600 years older than the next sequenced RNA. That's insane. It's like 20 times older yeah. than the next oldest sequenced RNA. Wow. Okay, so now the question is, right, but we already have DNA, so what's the difference? Yes. Well, skeptical listener, RNA can tell you a few different things. For one, the way that RNA is structured and behaves is different in different tissues of the body. So they were able to link the ancient RNA to the kinds of tissues that they found, which suggests that we could use ancient RNA to identify what kind of tissue we're looking at. So liver tissue, muscle tissue, etc., which is cool. That's very cool. Because RNA is happening at a particular moment and transcribing DNA sort of when needed, it can also potentially inform on genetic activity during life. What were the conditions of life of this organism at the time it died? Diet, climate, things like that. And the other thing that always comes up with RNA is there are certain... Organ I was going to say organisms, but viruses. <laughs> there are viruses that are pretty much only readable through RNA, which means in the fossil record, in ancient remains, we have very little record of them. But this study suggests that we can find ancient RNA, which might open us up to being able to study the history of things like influenza and HIV, Diseases that are very important for us to understand. That's so cool. The fact that they could sequence them is insane. Yep. Like, that's that that's the, the, the pot of gold that you hope for whenever looking for ancient genetic material is that you can sequence it, even if just partially, to get some idea of what you're dealing with. You know, because finding it's cool, but knowing what it was doing is even better. And RNA is a really cool one because it is this uh, uh, this temporary fleeting piece of evidence. And so the fact that you get it is, uh, it's it's not just like that you went and sampled a star. It's like you caught a comet. Yeah. yeah like, <laughs> it's cool. There are still a couple of limitations, uh, addenda, a couple of quid pro quos. <laughs> this is still nowhere near as good as DNA. Yes. In terms of long-term preservation, the oldest DNA that we know of is about 700,000 years old. So we'll keep looking. <laughs> and the authors point out that these specimens, this wolf specimen, it's called a puppy, the wolf puppy specimen, Aww. is extremely well-preserved. This is a very rare case. So it might still be that ancient RNA is going to be really rare and only in exceptionally preserved specimens but even if that's the case 
You could start looking for it not only in tissue, but in bone, Mm -hmm. in keratin, in seeds. So there's all sorts of places that we might be able to find it if indeed it is out there. Even if rare, it still would be awesome to find more. Yep. Well, my last bit of news is a bit more random and different, but it's about crinoid rafts. Crinoids? Hey, what's a crinoid? Crinoids are these invertebrate uh, creatures. They're still around today. Mm -hmm. They are sometimes called sea lilies. Yep. And they are famous in the fossil record for being those stalked. They have a little anchor that they then have a stem that goes up to this feathery head. And they're cousins of other echinoderms, which are your sea urchins and sea stars and the like. Yeah. So the crinoids look like weird flowers. They Yeah. They look very plant-ish. With a segmented stalk. Tendrils sort of plant-like. Yeah. It, well, the they've top. got these feathery arms. They're, they are feeding arms, but they have bristles off the side to catch the food. That's why they call them the sea lilies, is they look very flowery. Like a plume, almost like a feather duster. For Pokemon fans out there, Lilip and Craydilly are crinoids. Yep. Cool animals, still around today, extremely famous in the fossil record. This is research about this weird habit of some crinoids to latch onto floating debris, like Ooh. logs, and create these floating crinoid rafts. This research is by Aaron Hunter et al. in BioArchive. This is a preprint, so it is not yet peer-reviewed. So these rafting crinoids, uh, the rafting itself is not a new concept uh, for us. It's still happening today. We talked about it in the Islands episode. Episode four. It's something, basically the concept is where either land animals get onto, terrestrial animals get onto a floating piece of something and travel across the ocean, or oceanic animals huddle on or under or near a floating piece of something to give them shelter or give them provide food or safety. And floating something, not like a log or a, you know, a leaf, like you can get, especially after storms, big mats of vegetation. Oh, absolutely. Like a tree with Mm -hmm. all sorts of vegetation around it that clump together in this big floating raft. You also get natural forming ones like kelp. There's kelp. floating kelp that will form these mats that animals just live in for the time that they ex- they exist. There is fossil evidence that crinoids, at least two different species, did this during their time in the fossil record. Specifically, the Jurassic, which is a time where crinoids were very, very popular. So we're talking roughly 200 to 150 million years ago. At this time, they would have been one of the world's largest invertebrates. Oh, they, they were there were some big versions of crinoids back then. And a few of these seem to have clung on to logs with that anchoring foot. So their stalk, their stalk, the end of their stem has this little anchoring foot to it that they clung on to debris with and would float around. This concept, sometimes called the pseudoplanktonic crinoid mega raft colonies. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's awesome. Was not always accepted. It was it was debated upon. There was not a lot of solid evidence for that, how long these lasted, or if they really were a thing, if it was just something that happened randomly every now and then, or if it was something that was a normal behavior of these crinoids. Nowadays, it's fairly accepted. 
but they still thought that it probably was a fleeting thing, that it only lasted for maybe a few years, that they would raft on these logs, and then it would break up, and they'd fall down into the ocean and either reattach or die and be fossilized. This research took a statistical analysis look at these rafts and comparing them to modern bio-rafts, like we were talking about earlier, those mats of vegetation and other logs today, to see how stable a habitat they would have actually been. How long could these rafts have actually lasted? How, you know, structurally sound would they have been? And they found that it actually probably could have lasted a while. Their analysis said that a raft such as this, a log covered in cryonics, could last for up to 10, maybe even 20 years. Wow. Floating across the ocean. This is going to depend, of course, upon the state of the ocean, the the violence and where they're going and what log they're on and all that right, kind of right. stuff. And the state of the log. Exactly. So like all of that's going to factor into how long it actually lasts. But it could be a little floating ecosystem that lasts for quite a while. And since the cryonoids are filter feeders, as long as they're in the water, they're able to get their food. And this could provide homes for all sorts of other aquatic life forms. Interestingly, they don't find many other animals on the log. There are mussels present, but nothing else other than the mussels. So this is a these are this is Jurassic fossilized log with crinoids on it. Yes, and this is this isn't one like that they discovered. This is a concept that they are revisiting. So there's not so like these are one, already known. This is something already known. Yes, right, this right, is, right. There's not a specific site that we're going to because they're citing multiple examples. Yeah, and trying to. Sh- we're trying to see if there was support for this concept, further support for this concept by comparing it to the modern examples. And it seems like it would be a fairly stable environment. So it could have been providing food and shelter for lots of little aquatic organisms swimming around it. And a, a way to assess a type of ancient ecosystem you wouldn't think we would have access to. Yeah. It's like the underwater version of, like, a cloud city. Yes, exactly. (laughs) That's exactly what it is. Now, there is the question of what happened to these crinoid rafts. Because we still have crinoids. Yes, why aren't they rafting? Why aren't they still rafting? It was not a lot of species doing it from what it looked like. Like they said, there was only seemingly two lineages that really went with this lifestyle. So it wasn't super widespread. And they think that it might have been the logs that ended up holding them back. Because these flourished until about 180 million years ago and then disappeared. And they think it, it might have been the appearance of wood-boring organisms similar to shipworms. Oh, so there was there were less rafts yeah, so the, made of wood. The wood started breaking up more quickly as things started eating it. Interesting. Is what they hypothesized might have been one of the causes. And hmm. that this could have broken down that lifestyle if that's true then what that suggests is that before that time during the Mm -hmm. early jurassic and triassic there were a lot more floating logs in the ocean yes yes which is kind of a cool thought absolutely that there would have been just (laughs) driftwood would have been much more common potentially huh yeah well how about that they also say that this gives us some insights into our current rafting issue, which is floating debris, plastic, and waste material. Right. Which is a much longer-lasting floating raft, could last centuries, and could have a huge impact on these rafting animals, including causing problems with invasive species. One study uh. found that over 400 different types of organisms have been found 
uh, rafting on floating pieces of plastic. So they were, this study also might tell us something of what we might expect with this current state of the new rafts entering the ocean. I see. So what I'm hearing is that if we keep putting plastic in the ocean, giant crinoids will come back. Yes. No, that was the takeaway moral. I thought that was clear. Well, I mean, that's, (laughs) and then of course they will take over the world (laughs) and it'll be all our fault. Yeah, Yeah. It's the crinoid plot once again. Oh, there's continuity in this podcast now. (laughs) They've returned. That's a reference to an episode I don't actually remember which one it was. It was the Devonian extinction. I think so. I think so. uh, 65. Go check it out and let us know. (laughs) And with that, that will wrap up our news, which means we can start talking about eyeballs, which are not all balls. Not all eyeballs. Well, let's learn together. Absolutely. After this brief break. So eyes. Eyes. Eyes are kind of a big deal. A little bit. A little bit. Most of us have them. So they're a, a major feature of the animal group. Like that's... One of the things that, w- when you ask most people, what makes an animal an animal, that's often one of the things they say. It's not what makes an animal an animal. It's not correct. No. But that's often one of the first thoughts someone has. It's like, well, they, ha- they, like, they have eyes and they can eat and they can walk around. Eyes are huge in the animal kingdom, but they are very complex. There's not one kind of eye, which most of us know, but there's more kinds of eye than most of us are typically aware of because some of them are very specific and... There's a huge amount of their evolutionary history that we still don't really know. Now, we're going to get into more details on those, but before we get into all of those technicalities about eyes, let's talk about why we want to talk about eyes. Why are eyes important? Who cares? What? Yeah, why do we care about eyes? The obvious answer is they are a huge source of sense for animals. Like, they give you a ton of information about the world around you. Yeah. Hearing and taste and touch all do that as well, but eyes are a giant slice of that pie because they give you information at a notable distance and they can give you information the others can't, like the colors of things and the, you know, arrangement of things. You know, you can do some of that with echolocation, but sight can it gives you a lot of opportunities and it gives us non-photosynthesizers a way to use the sun. Yes. <laughs> to our advantage. <laughs> A way to a fun thought experiment on the importance of eyes is imagine a world without them. Yes. Like, and I, I don't mean, I mean that, like, think about all the things that animals do. Imagine how different our world would be if no organisms had yes. eyes. If no animal could see one another. And for a time in the past, that was the case. Yes. There Absolutely. was a time before eyes. So they're incredibly important for animal behavior and survival in a modern sense. But they're also potentially extremely important for how animals have become the way they are in the beginning. There are suggestions, and we'll get into more details in this a little later on, but I want to bring it up just since we're talking about the importance of eyes. It is potentially the case that eyes are one of the reasons the Cambrian explosion happened. Oh, yes. That the occurrence the first eyes coming about and animals finally be able to see and then chase slash run away from one another was one of the pressures to push animal life into this explosion of diversity and evolution 
Yeah, so to, as a reminder, back in episode mm-hmm. nine, the Cambrian Explosion, this is a time where life su- suddenly, over the course of a few tens of millions of years, yep. diversifies into all these different forms and all these different lifestyles in a geologically very rapid and surprising time period. And a lot of those new forms have ice. Have ice. And it's important because that explosion is the first time we see the earliest members of all the major lineages nowadays. Yep. They're all represented, and that's when we first see them. And this might be some foreshadowing, and you can (laughs) correct me if I'm wrong, that is also, I expect, where we see the rise of the main types of eyes. Yes, it is. So, eyes are very important evolutionarily, behaviorally, but they're also important as a discussion of evolution. Uh, Eyes have often been used as a tool to poo-poo evolution. Oh yeah, going way back. Going way, way back as an example of irreducible complexity. Yep. People for a long time have said, but look at an eye. It is such a perfect organic camera. Just every aspect of it is so precise. Half a camera doesn't do you any good. Yeah, this was an argument. How would half an eye help? That came up in Darwin's time. Absolutely. Darwin himself is quoted effectively saying the same thing, because at the time, he didn't have an answer Mm -hmm. for how an eye could evolve. There's a quote, which I will quote, from, uh, in response to this topic, which was, to suppose that the eye, with with all its inimitable contrivances could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. Yeah. Even Darwin said, the fact that something this perfect could evolve step by step does seem a little ridiculous. Yeah. And now, to not take quotes out of context, he then goes on to discuss at length how evolution works and how you might go about trying to prove it. This wasn't an admission that he was wrong, but it was him saying, yeah, that part? Yes, exactly. All of my evidence still suggests to me that I am correct about my formulation of natural selection, but yeah, I haven't come up with a good answer for the eyes yet. No, that was one of the wonderful (laughs) things about Darwin is that he was very open on, I don't have a great answer for these aspects. Here's what maybe, but was very forthcoming on like, no, this one I don't have a good answer for, and it may just be that we don't know yet, but... This exercise is left as uh, an activity for the reader. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And so... Eyes as a organelle, eyes as a organ have been a a touchy subject when it comes to evolution because of how good they are at their job. So eyes are an important topic. Yeah, both both evolutionarily and theoretically. Exactly. So first and foremost, let's define what an eye is and what some of the forms they have taken are. So an eye is a photosensitive, so light-sensitive organ or sometimes just cells mm-hmm. there are there are multiple levels to eyes which we'll get into here in a second but it is something that allows you to perceive light to some degree sometimes they're called oculi mm-hmm. and so anything that does that now there are some people who uh argue that only true eyes are the ones that form images okay but there are a lot of things that get the name eye that just let you see that light's there so to compare this with other senses, right, mm-hmm. your sense of smell, you have receptors that are reacting to the input of molecules, right? When when bacon is cooking downstairs, those molecules of scent 
reach your nose. The organs in your nose are specifically built to collect them and send a signal to your brain. Exactly. The eye is doing that, but with light. Yes. Photons from the the sun or from wherever hit your eye organ, your retina, your cells, whatever Mm -hmm. it is, and send a message to your brain. Yes. So that's the basics. And let's break down a little bit further. There are a few main parts of the eye that are important. The first one is one you already mentioned, the retina. Yeah. Which are your photoreceptor cells organized onto the back of your eyeball. Yep. And so that's where the retina is, and that's what the retina is. It's photoreceptor cells, which you're going to hear me use more often than retina, because a lot of animals have photoreceptor cells and not retinas. So cells that are there to receive light. They are able to transfer a photon into a chemical electro signal. And they're powered by a protein known as opsin. Mm -hmm. That is the crucial sight protein. And this is the chemical that allows for that photon to electrical transition. And the electrical signal is what's going to your brain to say light. You've seen light or you've seen this kind of light. Bacon. Exactly. And so these opsin proteins are not just found in animals. They're actually found in plants and fungi and bacteria as well. But they are different kind Mm. of opsin in those groups, which is important. We'll get into that later on. But animals have a very specific group of opsins that allow us to see these colors. Uh, Some primitive groups don't have it, like placozoans and sponges lack opsins, which is supporting that they broke off from the animal lineage very early on. Right, right. So they are too, too primitive, which is, you know, but they are too distant from our lineage to have opsins. So photoreceptor cells at the back of your eye. At the front of your eye, there's a couple of key parts. First is the opening, which is your pupil. Mm -hmm. Not all animals have pupils, but that's what that hole in your eye, which is around the iris, that colored part. The pupil allows you to control how much light enters your eye, which allows you to better focus in differing amounts of light. Open it up to let more in, close it up to let less in when it's brighter. Yeah, your pupil is a hole. It's a hole. It's an actual hole in your eye, but you couldn't poke through it because there's a covering in front of that hole called the cornea. Yeah. That's the, if you ever looked at someone's eyes from the side, that bulgy out part. Yes. That bubble (laughs) on the front of their eye, that's the cornea. It's the thing people scratch when they get an injury in their eye a lot of the time is you scratched your cornea. Mm -hmm. So that's a see-through layer of skin of epidermis over the opening of the eye. Yep. Once again, not all animals have this, but in most vertebrates we do. And then... Underneath both of those, so behind the cornea, behind the pupil, is your lens. Very important. This is a crucial part of vertebrate eyes and is what allows our eyes to be as good as they are. The lens is a typically crystalline structure that is transparent and further focuses the light. The cornea starts to focus it. The lens focuses it further. Most of us uh, vertebrates have adjustable lenses that can actually be flexed. Yeah, it's elastic. It It can change shape. And so that allows you to, like moving the lens on a camera back and forth to adjust the distance, it allows you to do some of that. Yeah, and so this is what gives us such crisp vision, uh, even in lower light. So this is why you can, theoretically, if you hold your finger up in front of your face, you can focus on your finger or you can focus on the background. Yes, even and if you, you can... have but one eye closed. You, yeah. With one eye, you can focus. You're changing your... So those are your main parts. And the way your eye uses those, light enters the eye through the cornea, which begins to focus it. The pupil controls 
how much of that light enters the lens, which further focuses it. It hits the back of your eye and is picked up by the photoreceptors on your retina, which change it into chemical electro signals through your nerves to your brain. Now, this is where a lot of you probably know this fun fact, but because of the way lenses work, the image actually enters the back of your eye upside down. Yes. It hits the back of your retina flipped because the focusing flips it. And then your brain translates that back to right up, right side up. It's kind of like when you look at your reflection in a spoon. Yes. It, the way that the light is hitting the surface of the spoon inverts the image mm-hmm. and your lens does something very similar. Exactly. So that ha- your brain processes it and is able to say these wavelengths mean this and this intensity means this and I create a picture right. to now understand the world I'm looking at. And Everything you're always seeing is a slight illusion because your brain's making sense of the light it's given and your brain's often wrong. Yeah, that's a whole <laughs> other podcast. <laughs> but that's effectively what's happening. So now you know what an eye is. So let's talk about some of the different kinds of eyes. There's different kinds of eyes? There's different kinds of eyes. There's different ways to see the world, which is why we should all be more patient with one another. And we're not, hey, look at this, <laughs> this guy with his public service announcement. And knowing is half the battle. When we say different kinds of eyes, I gather we're not talking about like how my cat's eyes have the vertical thing yeah. and the, the, the reflecty surface in the back. We mean drastically different. Yes. And we'll get into some of the different ways to do those different kinds. Because there's different kinds of eyes and there's different ways to do each of those different kinds of eyes. Oh, fun. Eyes are really complex in their variety because they're so useful. And that's why tons of animals have them. And have done all sorts of weird things to tweak them to suit different tasks. As we've discussed with other features, something that is going to be that intrinsic to your behavior and survival is going to be under a lot of evolutionary pressure to either adapt in various ways or remain the same under various conditions. Absolutely. So one of the interesting ways to look at eyes is that they are often categorized by the behaviors they're associated with the different styles of seeing light. This is because sight is often considered a behavior-driven evolutionary feature. So one of the techniques, specifically one by Nielsen in 2013, was to categorize them by behavioral groups, by classes. So four classes, each with increasingly complex behaviors associated with the vision allowed by those kinds of eyes. So we're going to go through those quickly because this is a nice way to group the different category of eye and what that eye does and how it's able to do that. So class one is non-directional photoreception. You're just sensing light. You're not telling where it's coming from. You just see that there is light. Right. There either light is dark. Yes, that's all you can tell. So you can't see if it's from the left or right. All you need for this are some simple photosensitive cells. So just some photoreceptors. This can be a single cell up to a patch of cells, but You don't need much more than that. And this can also work in very low light because all you're doing is telling the intensity. Is there light? Is it bright light? Is it not bright light? Is there no light? This allows you to do stuff like have a circadian rhythm based on light. Circadian rhythm is that thing that tells you to get sleepy when it's dark outside. There's a part of your brain that says if you sense dark for long enough, it must be bedtime. This is why certain animals fall asleep during like solar eclipses and stuff like that. It also can be used as a depth gauge for aquatic animals. Yeah. How intense is the light you're sensing? That means you're getting too close to the surface if it's too intense. It, or you're too deep because you're not sensing any light. So it gives them an idea there. Burrowing animals, it can be used to tell when they've broken the surface. 
I'm underground. I'm not underground because suddenly light. It can also be used to sense shadow just to let the organism know when it is and isn't in the shadow, you know, so that it, it can tell whether or not it's sheltered. And it can also give information about when you're being exposed to UV light, which is dangerous in high doses. So very simple tasks, very simple eye for very simple organisms. Usually you see these in a number of organisms. Lots of them are single celled. So you see them in lots of like dinoflagellates, which is a type of green algae that some of which have special photosensitive chloroplasts that have been retasked to detect light and then process it. Yeah, so not just in animals. Yes. We've been saying we're always very animal centric. Yes. And most of the things on our list are animals, but there are some examples, especially in class one that are non animal. There are a lot of single celled organisms like the algae Mm -hmm. that are phototoxic. Yes. They respond to light stimulus. And they're using opsin to do it, just not animal opsin. So yeah, there's a lot of photosensitive organisms. Mm -hmm. But then you do see it in things like polychaete worms. Uh, Some of them will have very simple eye spots. These are are the group that includes everything from a bobbit worm to feather worms. Yeah. Uh, So big group. So that's the, the first class, your simple, very basic, I can tell there's light and I'm using it for very simple tasks. The next step is directional photoreception. Now you can see where the light's coming from. This is actually accomplished in an interesting way. All you need is, it can be just one photosensitive cell, but it could be multiple. And then you need to block the light from one direction or multiple directions. But you need to somehow be able to tell which angle the light is coming from, even if it's just by a slight amount to have a little bit of directional sight. Now, at this point, it wouldn't be true sight. You would just be able to tell, oh, light on the left, light in front. Right, right. And that's it. You wouldn't have any pictures, really. You wouldn't have much of an image to work off of. So, like, if your patch of photoreceptor cells is a little bump. Is a little bump. Or if there's a blocking, if you have, like, literally a wall that's grown on one side. Or what's very common are shading shielding pigments having pigments Hmm. built in or around the cells that absorb the light and don't let it get processed that block the light interesting so if it makes it to that cell you know it has to be coming from a particular direction because it isn't coming from the direction of the shielding one the shielding pigment this is part of the reason that colored eyes are a thing is because those colors are doing a job in a lot of organisms is they're helping to direct the light or to block it so that you can get information. And the more angles you can get light from, the more directionality you can have. So you have differing, different shielded cells pointing in different directions. Right, right. So this starts to give you the ability to do things like move toward or away from light. Now you can say, ah, there's the light and I'm going to go get it. Or there's the light, ah, I'll run away from it. This is known as phototaxis. This is a common behavior seen in lots of simple organisms that is using light to move toward it, which is positive phototaxy, and then away, negative phototaxis. Mm -hmm. And this can be to seek out shade to not dry up in the sun, or if you're photosynthetic, to move toward the sun and get more sunlight. Or if the things you hunt are in the sun. Whatever might be the reason, it allows you to now orient yourself in a direction. It also allows you to orient yourself in relation to the light. I'm going to stand sideways to it. I'm going to say head on to it. I'm going to lay flat in it. Now you can actually tell which way you're facing compared to it. It can help you as an alarm signal because now you can see slight motion. 
if the direction is fine enough. You know, if it's not somewhere within this 340 degrees, <laughs> if it's at least 180 degrees, half directionality is what they would call that. Half of your field of view is blocked by those shading, whatever shading it. Now you can actually see slight movement so you could see the approach of a predator. Yeah. You could see the movement of a shadow when something moves above you. Things like that. And if it's narrow enough, you may even be able to use it to uh, uh, truly follow movement. Not just detect it, but actually see it. So you can start to get more active behaviors out of this vision, which is important. Each of these steps also mean you have to be able to process that information. Right. So it's typically more active behaviors, more complex behaviors, which means a more active, complex organism, usually. Some examples of this would be things like flatworms and nematodes, a lot of planktonic larvae of different organisms. So those are the floating babies of aquatic organisms mm -hmm. are known to have eyes like these before they either develop true eyes or don't, uh, which happens both ways. <laughs> There's a lot of things that have <laughs> eyes and then don't. Uh, polychaete larvae again. You know, we see polychaetes actually a number of times on this list. <laughs> those worms. Yep. All sorts of stuff. And then again, dinoflagellates show up. There's some that actually appear to be able to use eyes like this for slight predatory behavior. Ooh, so these are your little... Little green algaes, mm -hmm. which are photosynthesizers usually. But some have developed either a single or sometimes multiple eye spots on the body with simple lenses, but not to make an image. Uh, lenses help you just use less light to get your information. Right, right. And though some of those species have lost their ability to photosynthesize and prey on others, and they think, the thought is that they actually might be able to use those simple eyes to navigate toward their prey. Ooh, they're using those photoreceptive cells. They're using the light for something else. Yes. And then <laughs> they're going, not eating it anymore. Exactly. We're eating the ones eating it. <laughs> At this point, what's striking me is... That all these different groups of organisms that we're talking about with these simple versions of eyes are very diverse. Extremely. Eyes are not a thing that happened once. No. Lots of different origins of different kinds of eyes. And that's an interesting concept. And we'll get into exactly how much happened once and how much didn't happen once. But yes, the functional versions of eyes that we see have absolutely popped up multiple times wow. in different lineages. And that's becomes very important, especially when you get similar looking eyes in different groups that have evolved separately. The next two groups are where we can actually start calling them truly eyes. Uh, these can actually start to form simple images. Class three is low resolution vision. You can't make a clear picture, but you can see what's going on. This is usually created by taking that patch of photoreceptors and giving a shape to it. And that usually is making it into a indented dish. A little bowl. A little bowl, or what they call a cup eye. Okay, so it's just the same, but you're just your photo receptor cells in a little cup. In a little cup, because now you can start to get shadows on the eye. Yeah. The angle the light comes into the eye is now an extra layer of directionality. And if the cup is deep enough, you can start to form a very rough image of your environment. Mm. And this allows you to do cool stuff. It in introduces, of course basic imaging, and spatial resolution. So it starts to give you a picture of your environment. Right. It's not just a shadow yes. over in that direction. It's a shape. It's a blurry shape mm -hmm. in that direction, which can start to allow for m navigation, for motion. 
Right, right. You can start to navigate what they call anti-collision behavior. You can stop bumping into stuff. <laughs> I love that's awesome. Anti-collision. What a sciencey word for this animal doesn't bump into trees. Yeah, it's now you can start to see, oh, rock. I can move around the rock. Right, right, right. It also allows you to stay stationary in relation to everything. Because now you can see when you are and aren't moving mm-hmm. in relation to stuff, not just the light. Because it's hard. If you've ever tried to stay stationary just based on the sun... The sun always looks like it's in the same spot for the short moment you're walking. So this now gives you better reference. And it could also help in finding a suitable habitat. So now organisms can start being discerning about going to find where they want to be. Right. The right collection of blurry shapes. Yes. Is the kind of place I want to be. Exactly. And so this starts to allow you to be a a picky (laughs) animal that can see. (laughs) Uh, These are extremely popular versions of eyes and a lot of your you know more active organisms planarian flatworms are one of the popular go-to examples that have two little cup eyes a lot of time some of them only have two others have groupings of multiple which is getting toward one of the next steps of eyes (laughs) you also see this in a lot of things that need basic resolution vision in low light so a lot of aquatic animals box jellyfish actually have eyes like this interesting there's actually also have a cornea and a pigmented lens but we don't think they can actually form an image we know with them that they're not really seeing anything they're just using it to navigate okay and you see similar eyes in some gastropods as well slugs and snails. slugs and snails and stuff some some animals are able to do it with a different way sea urchins have photoreceptors across the body Ooh. so they're getting direction by pointing lots of different directions literally and the shading the blocking is the spines yep and so they actually have simple directional low resolution imaging by having eyes all over their whole body is eyes yes and Uh. so it's a different way to do it it doesn't always have to be one structure Ah. many clams are known to have it around the edge of their shell which is so cool to close when in danger but then there's a step up from this if you continue to cup the eye enough eventually you start to close the rim of the cup And that becomes what we call a pinhole eye. If the opening closes enough, it now becomes a pupil. Uh, So it just, now it is, it's not just a cup, it is a enclosed sphere. Yes. It's a cerebro, Mm -hmm. and it has a little hole letting light, letting some light in. Which increases your resolution by focusing the light to one point. Yeah, this is like if you do the um, the pinhole Mm -hmm. experiment where you look through a very tiny little hole and you get this... Focus yes. in your little uh, uh, oculus. Well, it's how they used to make pinhole cameras where you could put like a pin hole, you know, just a little small hole in one side of the tent and then see what was going on outside on the other side of the tent Yep, as things came through. Stuff like that. I assume that the pinhole eye is our fourth class. It actually is <gasps> just it's before the fourth not, class. Is it 3B? It's 3B <laughs> kind of. third class. It's, so it, it's... Its own little section within class three is the pinhole because it still has not added anything. It's just a very tight cup eye. Ah, okay. You see this most famously in the Nautilus. Ah, the shell, the the one living group of shelled cephalopods. Exactly. They have a pinhole eye, which means their eye, which when you glance at it, just looks like an eye. It's mm-hmm. round. It can move. It has a pupil. But if you stuck your finger into that pupil, if your finger was tiny enough, it would just go through. There's nothing blocking it. There's no cornea, no lens. Just a hole. It's just a hole where water moves in and out freely. Wow. Yeah. 
Huh. It's just a very <laughs> tight-mouthed cup. Interesting. And this gives them better resolution than the other cup eyes, but still not great resolution. So they don't have great right. vision, but they have a little bit better. And they still have some cool things. They can actually rotate their eye to adjust for the bobbing as they swim. Oh, that's cool. So it's staying relatively horizontal. So our eyes have, and in us and then in other animals, the eyes have muscles yes. surrounding them that control the movement. Mm-hmm. So when you move your eyeballs around, that you're using those muscles that are specifically there to do that. Yes. We have a pair of muscles for each axis. Others have more, some have less. So class four, class four are high resolution vision. These are what are often called camera eyes. Hmm. Eyes that make a truly crisp, clear image. Sometimes higher resolution, sometimes lower. But, you know, you can have a a bad camera, but it still creates a recognizable image. And this is created by adding focusing features. Corneas and lenses. You can have just the cornea, but most of the famous camera eyes have both. A cornea and a lens. And this is, you cap off that pupil, and you build a lens on the inside of your eye. Mm -hmm. Now, this gives you a few advantages behaviorally. First, now you can actively identify and pursue prey. Yes, you can recognize things. You can truly recognize things. You know, this is how facial recognition is is, is capable. You can now recognize and avoid predators. Yeah. You can see the danger, not just detect, oh, I think there's something nearby. No, that's a shark. And I'm going to run away from it now. (laughs) You also can recognize other foods like seeds and flowers. And it's also important in communication. Now you can recognize another individual of your own species, which is important for general communication, but really important for mate recognition. Yep. And this allows you now to use your eyes to do the tasks that a lot of other animals are using different senses for. Like recognizing what is good or not good to eat. Yes. Or what, who is my species and who is not my species. Which leads, of course, to all sorts of cool coloration stuff. Yeah. But a visually oriented species can look at two different flowers and go, oh, no, no, that one's poisonous. Mm-hmm. I know not to touch that. It also gives you detailed information at a much longer distance. Yes. Than a lot of the other senses give you. You can hear a long way away. And you can sometimes smell a long way away. But you can't do that super accurately, mm-hmm. usually. Yeah, not always, but usually. Right. Sight, I can go, oh, yeah, you on the hill. Over there. Way over there. That person. Hi. I can <laughs> wave to you even. And I can see you that you're can waving back. Me. Yes. <laughs> so this gives you some cool stuff. These are what typically get classified as true eyes. Right. This is usually when people are talking about eyes, they're talking about... Class four camera eyes. Right. Because it's the kind of eyes that we have and we made the designations. Absolutely. So they're obviously the best eyes, (laughs) which is actually an important distinction that a lot of the research makes is it's easy to think, okay, well, yeah, eyes go from bad to better to okay to good, which isn't true. Each stage of eye is perfect for the behavior it's doing. Yes. If I only need to find light, if I don't care what another, you know, polychaete worm looks like, then it doesn't matter. I don't need to see a picture of them. That would actually right. be too much information. Yeah. And it's something that you can't process. Yes. Or it's something that that eye might be way more than I need to build, take time building, take time and energy. Oh, yeah. And materials building this crazy awesome eye. And then all I'm doing is looking where the sun is. Yeah. And so each stage of eye is good for the tasks they're doing. And each next stage of eye can usually do the tasks below it just fine. 
but you don't always need those upper tasks. So it's not that it's, we went through bad to good eyes. However, what I did notice in our going through the classes of eyes is that in the question, and I assume this will come up, in the question of how do you go from no eyes to eyes, we've just outlined several perfectly valid intermediate stages. Absolutely. That could serve, if not as the exact evolutionary no. steps, as at least showing that, yeah, it's possible to have part of an eye. Yes. And so we have lots of examples for what a incomplete, quote unquote, yes. eye could do. Yes. Quote, half an eye, but it's not half an eye, it's an eye. Yeah. It's just a just different a kind. Different kind of eye. Yeah. So these camera of eyes typically fall into two categories, and those are simple and compound. Simple are the eyes in your head if you're a human listening to us right now. Right. Uh, and those are a usually a ball with the lens and the cornea and the pupil and the retina encased in or on that ball, that sphere. Right. Compound is taking multiple of those features and multiplying them, copying them in making one big eye out of lots of little versions of those same pieces. Usually there's exceptions, but usually. And so those are your two main groups. Most eyes are compound eyes. Most Camera eyes. Most camera most eyes. Big complex eyes. Are compound eyes. Those are by far the most popular and common of all the complex eyes. So this is when you look at real close images of a bug. Yes. Of like a dragonfly. You're... And it's all those... They looks like Epcot. Yes, it's it all does. all these different surfaces that are each functioning as a separate piece of... The eye, or is a distinct piece of the eye. Yes. And there's uh, lots of variety here. Most of these are going to be your your arthropods. Insects, crustaceans, mm -hmm. all of your exoskeleton-y are yeah. usually going to have these. There are some exceptions, but for the most part, they have compound eyes. There are two types of compound eye. One is what you typically think of when you think of compound eyes and how they're usually portrayed, which is the A-position compound eye. This is an eye where... Each of those little facets are a lens, a cornea, a lens, and a retina stacked next to each other. So basically you have thousands of little eyes. Yeah, all working together. As a big globe. As a big... It's like the way that um, NASA uses multiple telescopes mm -hmm. to form one image yes. working together. And these little sections are called omatidia. And this actually does create multiple little images. Now, usually they're not focused images. Each one is taking a sample of the overall image, which is then brought together into one perceivable image of the environment. And some, there are versions that do legitimately form a mini image in each omatidia. And so that's a position eyes. That's usually what you see in most diurnal daytime insects. So flies and bees and stuff like that. Those are the most common ones you're thinking of when you think of you know, bug eyes, insect eyes. Superposition is the other version where you have lots of little facets on the outside and then a gap underneath that inside the eye, a empty space or almost empty space, and then a single retina-like structure. So instead of having lots of little eyes, you have a multifaceted cornea and lens system. And you're forming a single image all at once, but it's focusing from all those different angles very different to our eye. These are most common in a lot of nocturnal insects because it's actually much better at capturing low-level lights. 
But you also see it in a lot of deep water creatures. So crustaceans often have these kind of eyes. And then you have our eyes. Simple eyes. Simple eyes. Really straightforward, dumbed down eyes. Yeah. Uh, A hole and a lens and a backboard. And the two groups you see this in are vertebrates and cephalopods. For the most part. So vertebrates being... Us, mammals, birds, reptiles, fish, amphibians, cephalopods, episode 16. Yes. Squid, octopus, cuttlefish, and the like. Exactly. And I say cephalopods, but you may remember, you go, Baha, wait, you just said the Nautilus doesn't have any of that. And that's true. It's the one that doesn't. Weird. It is weird. But octopus, squid, cuttlefish have an eye almost identical to ours. Yeah. Separately evolved. Separately evolved. A cornea, a pupil, a lens. Similar shape, similar sensitivity. They have almost as good a vision as us. And so these eyes are the ones you typically are thinking of when you think of an eye. Is this simple camera eye. There's a huge variety to these, just like the compound. Usually it's in modifying the different aspects of these structures. But that would be the entire episode if we went through (laughs) all the cool things animals have done with their different eyes. So we'll cut that off there for now so that we can get on to talking about how did you make eyes? How did that, where did they come from? How did you, how does one evolve an eye? We'll discuss that in just a bit. So eye evolution is an interesting one because eyes, as we mentioned earlier, are soft tissue, so they don't typically fossilize in great detail. Right. If they're made of cells or squishy things, not going to go well. There are plenty of aspects of the eye that do fossil from time to time to give us hints. So it's not that we're completely blind to the history of eyes, (laughs) but we are missing a lot of data. We are also missing a lot of data because... By the time we get the first fossilized eyes, their eyes, the Cambrian explosion, when we first see the earliest fossils with eyes, and they have true eyes, most of them camera, class four eyes. And this is the problem we've discussed before, where the earliest evolution of something is always hard to find because it's rarer than especially with something like eyes, which are unlikely to fossilize in the first place. And because it looks like it might have happened relatively quickly, that eyes might have popped in almost instantaneously as far as the fossil record goes. Right. With with the, the kind of resolution you would need to see that, we might not be getting in the geologic record. And so we'll, we'll talk about that. But first, there are some hypotheses. So... A lot of the evolution of eyes is more speculative than fossil-based. I mean, it's using the fossils as its building ground, but it has to be more, what what do we see in eyes today, and how could we see a pattern in that evolving? So a lot of this is very speculative in the solutions to eye evolution. Right. In the last section, we saw how it is theoretically Mm -hmm. perfectly plausible to go from a simple version with slight tweaks to get something more complex. Start with cells, make it a cup, make it a pinhole, add a little layer over it for focusing, and you basically got your eye. And that is a very popular proposed evolutionary path rise. But in order to know that that is what did happen, or in various circumstances, because eyes have evolved multiple times, Mm -hmm. how was it different in different evolutionary lines, 
We need fossil evidence. Yes. So we can't give you a clean answer for here's how eyes arose in the different groups. Because by the time we see cephalopod eyes, they look like cephalopod eyes. And by the yep. time we see vertebrate eyes, they look pretty much like vertebrate eyes. And same goes with compound eyes. There are some clues we can get as to what those early eyes might have been like. And what their origins might have looked like. Nice. So we can get some information there. First off, there are uh, there's two proposed hypotheses for how photoreception first started in animals. This was proposed in uh, Gehring 2005. There were two different, mostly hypothetical, mostly speculative, solutions that they came up with for how did we get opsins and how do we start sensing light. The first one is the cellular differentiation method, which assumes that photoreceptor cells originated from colonial protists and one section of the cells became you know its job was to be photosynthesis became photosensitive and that eventually translated into multicellular organisms which colonial to multicellular and basically some of those cells developed that ability right right which is totally in line with hypotheses about how you go from single cell to multi-cell exactly so that there were specialized Specialized cells within that colony. Right. That would do the job that eventually would be our retina. So you had a colony of single-celled organisms, all of which may have had photoreceptor ability to begin with, and as they start differentiating, as they start sort of specializing, some of them hold on to that photoreceptor ability and become the eye for the colony. Yes, exactly. The other proposed route is the symbiosis one which they acknowledge is the more speculative of the two mm -hmm. because it has to assume a few steps. This is basically the concept that smaller unicellular organisms were incorporated by other single-celled organisms, which is how we think we got certain things in our cells like chloroplast in plants and mitochondria in us and things like that. Yes. Is that in the past somewhere a cell ate another cell but didn't digest it and it became an endosymbiont kept it inside and then eventually that just became part of it and for mitochondria and chloroplasts that is very well supported yes so there's precedent for it this is a suggestion that that happened with a photosensitive cyanobacteria of some sort interesting so that some bacteria that was sensitive to light like the chloroplast bacteria yep got omnomed <laughs> they suggest by red algae okay and primarily for chloroplast, you know, to get that photosynthesis at first. And like we said, some chloroplast has been redesigned to be photosensitive in other organisms. This in turn would then have to get absorbed by a dinoflagellate of some sort. Right. And then because dinoflagellates are commonly found in symbiosis to cnidarians, your jellies <laughs> and <laughs> things like that, it could end up in an animal relative. So multiple layers of symbiosis there's leading a to animals acquiring the ability. There's a reason they called this the Russian nesting doll or the yes. Russian doll model. <laughs> <laughs> Given time and, and, and occurrence, not totally out of the question, Absolutely. I suppose. And neither of these two are exclusive to the other. Right. One could have happened and then the other could have happened. Or one could have happened in step with the other. Both of these are speculative. We don't know this is what happened because we don't have the fossils of these stages. So we can't say this is what happened. But basically, this is an answer to 
yeah, but how could we get the ability to see light? Eh, there's ways. Right, right. There are ways to do it. And I would assume that given how many times eyes have shown up in different groups, like mollusks, like mm-hmm. some clams and stuff have eyes, presumably it's appeared, photosensitive ability has appeared lots of different times in lots of different ways. You might think so. I might think so. But that's not what the evidence shows. Interesting. Go on. Current evidence does not support multiple evolutions for opsin specifically and okay. photosensitive structures in animals. Interesting. That was the debate for a long time. Did it show up lots of times? Did it show up if once? And it seems to be more supported that it showed up once. So the structure of the eye may have appeared multiple times in multiple different ways, but the underlying mechanisms, the proteins they're using, the, the super tiny foundational the structures, the cellular structures, that is probably ancestral. Yes. To most animals. Interesting. Yeah. One of the reasons we think this is because of genetics. The Pax genes. Mm-hmm. The paired box genes. These are famous for being in charge of creating certain body parts or directing certain body parts to develop during an embryo's development. This says build an arm. This says build an ear. One of them, Pax 6, is very, very highly uh, connected to sensory, specifically developing the eye and parts parallel to the eye. Okay. So Pax 6 is a eye-growing Pax gene, effectively. And it has been found in multiple groups of ma- of animals. In fact, Pax 6 has been found present in mammals, flies, and certain mollusks, and the mouse and fly Pax 6 can actually cause development <laughs> in one another of yeah, an eye. So if you take that that genetic sec- segment out of a mouse and put it in a fly, it does the same thing. Yep. Mouse and human Pax genes have identical amino acid sequences. So the fact that Pax 6 is so common and so similar among such widely diverse animal groups suggests that it's very ancestral, at least going back toward the common ancestor to animals, right, right. if not two. So the cellular and genetic underpinnings of eye structure are all the way back at the beginning of animal evolution. Absolutely. And then different groups have done different things with it, but the foundation evolved early on. Exactly. Cool. This is further supported by the fact that the opsin, the protein that we use to see that animals have, is significantly different from those that plants and fungi and bacteria have. All animals that have opsin have similar grouping of opsin. So it seems that we learned how to see early on and then got good at it in different ways. Right, right. (laughs) And so that's where it's interesting. So now we start getting the question of how did they first pop up? When did the first organisms start to see? The common suggestion is what we said earlier. Those four classes pretty well encapsulate what we think likely would have happened is sensitive cells, directional cells, cupped cells, enclosed cells, cells with a lens. Right. And that that's probably what the path would be. Not definitely, but very likely. Well, and it's also, you know, it, it, even if it did take that route, it's very unlikely that it went straight from one to the other to the other to the other. There was probably all sorts of experimentation. Yeah. Like there always is. Absolutely. 
But one of the big questions is, well, when did those first start popping up? Because the issue is we have solid eyes in the Cambrian. But if we have fully developed camera eyes in the Cambrian, they had to have started before that, which is leading us into the Precambrian, where we don't have very good fossils. No, the fossils in the Cambrian that are going to give us evidence of eyes, by the way, are... In some cases, you're going to rely on those crazy soft tissue preservation yes. where it's, oh, we can see the shape of the eye. The Burgess Shale and stuff like that. But the nice thing about those compound eyes that Will described before is that they're part of the exoskeleton. Absolutely. And so they preserve. And so we have pretty good looks at some early Cambrian compound eyes. Especially trilobites yes we do trial it's <gasps> pictures in the blog oh yes yes <laughs> and so we know details about their eyes and know that they had eyes that effectively were as complex as modern compound eyes oh yeah we know more about trilobite eyes we must know more about trilobite eyes than any other fossil animal Probably. Probably. We have so much information. And yet there's still things to learn, which I'll mention in, in just a little bit. There's oh a fun fact I found while studying. <laughs> so if they started beforehand, when? When did they start? What evidence do we have? We do have a little bit of evidence from the Precambrian as to when eyes might have popped up or that there is evidence that eyes were starting to pop up before then and just weren't fossilizing because a lot of things in the Precambrian aren't hard-bodied. Right, so right. it may just be that we're not getting them preserved, but there are in the Precambrian and they become more common as we get close to the Cambrian tracks every now and then little trackways in the sand, which in their appearance seem to suggest something walking through the sand. Okay. The size, which is very small, suggests some worm like little creature walking probably a few millimeters long small right right we're talking 600 million years yes. ago now so if these trackways were indeed made by early animals they suggest a more active early animal mm -hmm. which could suggest site-based behavior could be if you're walking around you might want to be able to see where you're going and if those were early animals with simple eyes that then gave rise to true sight that could have been what kicked off one of the things that kicked off the Cambrian explosion, because now that I can see you, it's going to cause an arms race with me better hunting you, you better avoiding me. Now that I'm better at hunting you, you might need to build armor, which is going to start making all those shelly fossils we start finding at the yep. end of the Precambrian and all of the hard exoskeleton animals we find in the Cambrian explosion. And burrowing became more common during the Cambrian as well, which is another great way to avoid predators that can see you. So there's a lot of things that line up. They seem to support one another, but we can't say for sure. There is an, an environment that would have benefited greatly from eyes. And the really interesting thing here is that you might expect for something as complex as an eye, if it showed up at the Cambrian, it probably had to have been around for hundreds of millions of years before that, slowly working its way up to these complex structures. But according to certain analysis, that's not what it seems like is true. At least one computer analysis that estimated going through those same steps described by Nielsen that we went through, those mm -hmm. stages, those classes, estimated that the amount of time it would take to move from one stage from photosensitive cells to camera eye could take as few as 364,000 generations, which means it could happen in down to half a million years. 
So in half a million years, you could go from no eyes to eyes. Well, and a thing that is really striking to me about this, all this discussion of eyes and this question of the evolution of eyes, it starts to seem for all of the hype about how complex eyes are and how inscrutable eye evolution is, the fact that there are so many eyes in so many different types of at least different lines and different origins of certain features and the fact that photoreceptor cells mm -hmm. are so common among organisms and the fact that the going from stage to stage in a lot of ways is just a reorganization of cells yep. more than it is coming up with something new or dramatically different it's sounding like at the risk of being <laughs> dismissive Sounds like eyes aren't that hard to make. Well, and, and the really important thing, that was not something people realized earlier on in the, the concept of evolution, is that you can improve upon an eye gradually, incredibly gradually, without breaking it and constantly improving it. That, you know, improving, making the sight more detailed. And if this new structure is allowing you to do a whole new version of sensing your environment, then the selective pressure on exactly. it is bound to be really intense. And that means that because gradual change is capable and in this pressure is high, it can happen very flexibly. You can make a change easily and quickly without suddenly blinding your species. So I don't want to discount <laughs> the, the notion that I, oh, eyes are complex and eyes yes. are fascinating and important, but I it does not seem far-fetched that it could come about without the kind of hassle that at first it seems like you would need. Well, because uh, for a long time we looked at eyes as this unfathomable structure, this, right, this right. you know elder technology left behind by the ancients <laughs> that we'll never understand. We can't make Roman fire anymore. You're like, and the truth is not really. I mean, it's real good at what it does, and it does some awesome, crazy things, but the building blocks... And the steps to get there are really not that insane. So if eyes did pop up that quickly or even close to that quickly, even if we say it was two million years, you know, right, four right, times right. millions of years, which is still pretty quick. That is so hard for us to hope to find fossils oh, absolutely. in that period of no <sighs> eyes to eyes. So we might not get any solid fossil evidence for any of these things we're talking about, which makes eyes a tricky topic so let's talk about some of the fossils we do have let's talk about some of the solid evidence we do have for the different kinds of eyes and trilobites is definitely where we're going to start because first <laughs> off compound eyes are your most fo common fossilized because it's what fossilizes yeah and trilobites are super interesting with their eyes so trilobites for anyone who doesn't know trilobites are this ancient group of arthropods so they would have been bug-like yes Sort of, not quite crustaceans, not quite horseshoe crabs, but a along those same lines. Hard exoskeleton across the back. They've got a bunch of legs underneath. Crazy common. Oh, yes. In the Paleozoic era. Crazy common as far back as the Cambrian. They are some of the first massively successful crawling in the, the seafloor organisms. And they fossilize because they're all exoskeleton. Mm-hmm. Super, super well, in many cases, down to fine details. Absolutely. So we have tons of trilobite eyes. The earliest trilobite eye where we have 
preserved sensory cells. So the inside part that's actually seeing the light <laughs> goes back 400 million years. Jeez. So we have a really good idea of early trilobite eyes from when they're preserved, at least. So we have their fossilized retina. Yeah. That's <laughs> insane. Now, very similar compound eyes to other compound eyes. Uh, they're actually very similar to a position. So that's what they would be classified in is the multiple facets, the uh, omatidia, each one seeing its own little image. Right, right. So like a dragonfly. Like a dragonfly, like a fly, like a bee. Trilobites had eyes pretty much like theirs. Yeah. They have tons of cool eyes. They have eyes on stalks. They have half-lidded eyes. There's lots of cool stuff there. But a lot of those you see in other compound eye organisms. So it's kind of neat that they're doing a lot of the same stuff with their compound eyes as other insects and other crustaceans. Uh, which I, I find that interesting that trilobites just, yeah, no, these are good ways to look around. Another great source of information for compound eye history is horseshoe crabs. The eyes of horseshoe crabs, which have been around 450 million years. So their eyes have been fairly conserved during that time. So we actually have a really good look at and This is a good example of ancient eyes. And looking at how they use them nowadays can give us insights into how ancient compound eyes might have been used. Right, maybe an ancestral state inferred from the modern Exactly. Animals. Vertebrate eyes have a little bit more mystery around them because ours are squishy. Yeah, we're not making them out of chitin. So we don't have really good fossils uh, as often for vertebrate eyes. We do get some examples and some hints. Uh, one popular hint are sea squirts, which are... A animal that, as an adult, is this stationary, filter-feeding aquatic organism, but as a larva is mobile and has eyes, and it is a distant relative for vertebrates. As a larva, they have very simple photoreceptor cells, so a very simple eye spot, which might give us an idea of maybe it was something that started out larval, then was kept into adult forms. You see that with other groups where the larva is moving around so it has vision, or something of vision, and then the adult settles down and loses the eyes. Right, you don't need them anymore. Exactly. So sea squirts give us a little bit of a hint of maybe what early vertebrates eye evolution looked like. We also can get information from fossils of vertebrates, uh, usually later on fossils, so we're not getting early eye evolution. But we can get eye information from the size of the orbit. You know, the mm -hmm. opening in your skull where the eye goes can tell you some stuff about the eye. The shape of the brain cavity, if you have it, can give you information about optic nerves and the portion of the brain dedicated to that. So you might be able to get some information about how much of their brain was working on sight. Same way we do with smell and stuff like that. Yeah. But the most fun one is the sclerotic ring. Yeah. That's that's one of the best. So the sclerotic ring is still in animals today, and it's very common in birds and certain reptiles. And it is this bony ring inside the eye that acts as a structural support and uh, muscle attachment for moving the pupil in and out and supporting usually uh, larger eyes. And if you're real lucky... You can get that bony sclerotic ring structure preserved in fossils. Absolutely. So certain dinosaurs have been found with it. Marine mm -hmm. reptiles have been found with it. And it can give us information about the size of your eye. It can give us information about how you might have been using it. 
you know, what things it suggests about your eye, which is really cool. That's probably my favorite of all the fossil vertebrate eye evidence is the sclerotic ring. Yeah, I've seen some studies that have tried to infer, like, if it was active in the nighttime versus mm-hmm. the daytime based on aspects of the sclerotic ring. Now, we know that vertebrate eyes go back basically as far as compound do mm-hmm. because we have early Cambrian chordates, you know, so vertebrate cousins yeah. that had at least some kind of functioning eye. We don't have a the eye itself, but we know it had it. Hycoichthys is one example of these early Cambrian chordates. Resembles kind of the, the larva of modern jawless fish, so it had been very small and long and wriggly. But they had a pair of eyes, so even though compound eyes are the more popular in fossils, so it's often seen as the more, like, primitive, like, compound eyes came around and then our eyes... You know, it looks like our eyes were right there alongside compound. Which makes sense. Yes, absolutely. You're in the arms race. In truth, it makes more sense that ours would come first, because it's the simple eye. It's it, You're not yeah. building nearly <laughs> as many a crazy... Th- we see ours as the superior... But there's things that the compound can do that ours can't, and it's insane. Some of them have thousands of facets. But we get some of our best vertebrate fossilized, or eye evidence, from the Devonian. And these are fish eyes, which most vertebrate eyes in the fossil record are fish eyes. Yes. Because fish. You get a couple of good examples of eyes at that time that give us an idea of at least which features reach that far back. And so that's what most of these fossils give us information on it. Okay, well, that had shown up by now, at least. Osteostracae is a taxon of armored jawless fish, very successful during this time, that give us some of our first detailed evidence of the vertebrate eye morphology. You know, so we could see on others that they had eyes, but we didn't know a lot about the eye. These had a sclerotic ring. The brain case and internal structure are preserved, so we get some information about the nerves and uh, uh, organization of the brain there and the eye sockets on these animals preserve muscle indentations oh cool for the eye so we know that they had the presence of they had the ability to move the eye with muscles attached to it so we were looking around with our eyes at least by the devonian even better than that though are the placoderms those armored jawed fish that we've talked about before. In episode 29. These were the dominant fish group in the Devonian, and they're unique because their usually entire face was fully bony armor. Mm-hmm. Covered just every aspect of it, including the eye socket. And because it's encapsulated by armor, we not only get the shape, but also all the nerve and blood vessels moving to and from the eye through the armor. So we get a really detailed look at how their eyes were organized, which can, is just a, a boon of knowledge for eyes during that time. And it shows us that most of the complexities in the vertebrate eye had evolved by roughly 400 million years ago. Not unexpected at this point. Yeah, so vertebrate eyes just kind of looked like vertebrate eyes 400 million years ago. And then since then, it's just been tweaking it. And there weren't crazy updates until we came to land and then had to start seeing in a different medium. So like compound eyes were probably there from the Cambrian or so. Absolutely. We can even confirm that we had rods and cones similar to those of today 300 million years ago with another fossil fish. This is Acanthodes bridgii, one specimen preserved 
the tissue of the eye with Ooh. mineralized rods and cones. And it gave us enough information to say it probably had color vision. Cool. Which means vertebrates probably have had color vision since that time. And so that's probably something that goes back even past that. That we've probably had color vision for a very long time. Yeah, color vision is very widespread, to my yes. knowledge, among fish. So probably goes back quite some time. Absolutely. So, and, it, and the reason that they think it makes sense for this fish is it is found in what are interpreted as shallow water environments. And in shallow water, you now have enough light to use it for color vision. Aha. Uh-huh. Now that we got basically gotten verbatized, cephalopod eyes are the last one to talk about. And there's really not a lot. <laughs> this there's, is like our cephalopod episode. There's not a lot. Not a lot of evidence. Are there any e- examples, really, of cephalopod eyes in the fossil record? Not that I was able to find, really. Okay. Not not really surprising. Not really. There have been suggestions about uh, uh, ammonites that they also had camera-like eyes. I would hazard a guess that cephalopods have probably had cephalopod eyes for a long time. Yep. Like the rest of us. Absolutely. Cool. So that's going to wrap up our discussion of eyes for now. There's a lot to talk about with eyes. They're a very complex topic with lots of exceptions and details so as always if you want to hear more let us know absolutely otherwise thanks for listening to us talk about eyes you can give us other suggestions and all the typical ways listen to all the information in the outro thanks again to those who suggested this episode thanks very much absolutely we release episodes every fortnight so there'll be another one coming up Actually, it'll come up around the time that we are at DragonCon, or maybe after we get back from DragonCon. Yeah. We'll report back after DragonCon. So listen for that. Come see us at DragonCon if you're at DragonCon. Yeah, we'll keep our eyes out. (laughs) You see what I did there? I did. We're going to go now. (laughs) Outro music. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.